The following presentation is from Mountain Park Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Mountain Park, along with additional audio and video teachings, visit mountainpark.org. Hey, uh, we are continuing our whole shebang series, as Lori said, and uh, today we are in the third tab in your binder. If you don't have a binder yet, please feel free to pick one up in the lobby. And we're on week number two of what we're calling the Messiah, looking at the person of Jesus, this, this person who was the fulfillment of all that the story had been leading up to. Last week we looked at the fact that Jesus met expectations, and in a way he did, and in a way he didn't. He did in the sense that he fulfilled miraculously numerous prophecies that flowed out of the Old Testament in an incredible way. But in a sense, he did not meet expectations because he wasn't the Messiah that they were looking for. He didn't have the earthly uh, power that they expected the Messiah to have. As we talked about last week, Jesus the Messiah came to bring freedom. He, bring, he came to set the captives free. He came to set us free from our sin and from death by dying on the cross. That was his purpose, and we're going to look at that over the next few weeks, why Jesus had to die on the cross, etc. But the interesting thing that I want to take a look at today is that God didn't just send his son Jesus to come to declare that he was God, and then, boom, get the job done and die on the cross. That there was a period of time where Jesus intentionally spent in his public ministry teaching and pouring into the people so, so that they could absorb something from him and that we can benefit from it and continue to absorb thousands of years later. Jesus didn't just come and get the job done. He took a chunk of time to teach and to give us things that we continue to read and study. The words of Jesus are the most studied, dissected, memorized cherished words that have ever been brought into humanity. And so what we're going to do here this morning is we're going to just kind of take an overview of the teachings of Jesus. Just kind of step back and be challenged and inspired to appreciate the amazing gift we have in the teachings of Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads with me one more time as we, as we pray here? Father, we are thankful that in this story, Jesus didn't just just skip through, but that he took the time to give us the gifts of his teaching. And so, Father, once again, I pray that uh, these would not be my words that are shared here, but God, as we look at the words that you uh, gave your son Jesus to speak, God, that, that you would speak to us, that you would come and teach us today and every time that we gather together to celebrate you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And I want to talk about kind of the, the process of learning and the process of teaching. I invite for those of you who graduated from college to kind of just go back to the college experience. And if you didn't go to college, then go back to, to the high school experience and, and think of those four years or five or six or whatever journey that was for you. Think about that high school or college experience and try to imagine how many things you learned in that time. How many things... Did you learn in those four years? I'm not talking about things that you have retained since then, because that's like five. Okay, I get that. But how many things did you have to read, learn, and even if your short-term memory got it and then put it on a test, put it on, had to respond some way, how many things 
did you learn? Uh, let me just go on a, on a conservative journey and imagine that a course would have 30 classes in it. And let's say, for whatever reason, you were sick a few times, maybe hung over for a few times. I don't know your story. I'm not here to judge. But maybe you only made 25 of those 30 classes. And let's say in those 25 classes, conservatively, you learned two things in each class. Two things, and it, it's probably way more than that, but let's just say there were two things. In 25 classes, that's 50 things that you may have learned in one course. Five courses in a semester, 250 things. Uh, two semesters, 500 things over four years, not five, six, or seven, let's just say four years, that would be 2,000 things that you may have learned in college. 2,000 things. Now, if $100,000 was paid for your college education, that was $50 a thing. How's that, how does that feel? Or perhaps $20,000 per retained thing. That's kind of a little more perspective on that. Now imagine there was a college degree, a, a college equivalent degree, where you could learn the essentials on how to do life, how to live life, the essentials of how to, to live relationally, how to handle things financially, how to live spiritually, the essentials on how to do life. And it is a free course taught by the greatest professor who has ever breathed oxygen. And this course didn't have 2,000 things for you to try to absorb, but only had 100. 100 things. Would you be interested in taking that course? Would you be leaning forward and saying, you know, I, I, I'd kind of be foolish not to embrace that? 100 things. Okay, look, look at this for a moment. Look at this here. This is a list of rules at a playground. And this here, you can't, I know you can't read all of the words in here, but there are 14 things that are to be learned that, uh, with regard to playing in this playground. 14 things, and they include, you know, don't play on it when it's wet, and there has to be a super adult supervision and all. It's mostly legalese, blah, blah, blah. And now check this out. This is a sign at a, at a bathroom telling you this is how you're to do it. You're not supposed to stand up because that's gross. You don't want to grab the thing and vomit here. You're going to have to find some other place for that. Don't sit on top of the toilet. Uh, you don't want to fish in there. And then I don't know what the last person's doing. I've never been tempted to do anything like that ever in my life. But here we have 14 things that you're supposed to learn in order to play on the playground. Six things that you're supposed to learn in order to relieve yourself. Don't you think that we can handle 100 things that have to do with living life? I went this week and I, and I went through the four Gospels. We, as I said last week, as we look at the Messiah, we're really looking at, at the four Gospels and the story the part of the whole shebang story that they tell. And I went over them a number of times and looked at how many things Jesus said in those four Gospels. Now, I know that Jesus said things outside of the Gospels, and he says some things in the book of Acts and, and the book of Revelation, the last book of the New Testament. 
Uh, he has plenty of things to say there, but nobody understood what he said. And uh, uh, that's more like, a, uh, more like a, a doctoral degree versus a bachelor's degree. And so at, at the end of the whole shebang, we're going to get back to that uh, uh, in the fall here. We're going to take a look at the book of Revelation and find out, you know, what, what is God trying to say to us through all that? But just limiting it to the, the four Gospels, guess how many things Jesus had to say to us? Not sentences, not words. Guess how many kind of sections of teaching that God had, to, had for us in the four Gospels? A hundred. One hundred. There's a lot of them that are repeated uh, throughout there. There's about a hundred unique things that Jesus has to say to us. A hundred. That's it. A couple weeks ago when I was talking about the minor prophets, that I don't want to get to heaven and meet up with somebody named Zephaniah who comes up and says, hey, so what would you think of my book? And I'm saying, and you are, that there's this thing that, well, in the same way, I don't want to meet up with the king of kings. I don't want to meet up face to face with the king of kings who says, did you consider, ponder, think about the 100 things that I said to you? I don't want to say to him, well, I know you gave me 75 years and I got through about 30 of them. That's, that's enough. Is that, is that okay? Is that good enough? I don't want to say that to him. So what we're going to do here today is we are going to look at a condensed section of the Gospels that has a lot of Jesus' teaching. It's in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. That's where we're going to spend our time. It's referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And this is kind of a, a, a capturing of a lot of Jesus' teaching. It's kind of the best of, if you will. Greatest hits, so to speak. And in these three short chapters, there's actually 19 of the 100 things that Jesus had to say. 19% of what Jesus had to say can be found in these three chapters. And so what we're going to do is just real quickly look at four attributes with regard to the teachings of Jesus. Four characteristics that can help us think about the gift that we have in the teachings of Jesus. So let's begin here with chapter 5. The first attribute I want to look at is that the teachings of Jesus are magnetic. They are magnetic. They draw people in. These four things are listed in your notes under the, the, the Scripture sections there. Chapter 5, verse 3 begins. This is how he begins this sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. When you imagine Jesus speaking this, is he speaking to the rich or is he speaking to the poor when you imagine this? Have any of you seen The Life of Brian? Uh, there's the scene where they're all listening to the Sermon on the Mount. And one says, what did he say? Blessed are the cheesemakers. Oh, I think he means all dairy products. I don't know if you've ever seen this movie. But that scene actually paints a pretty good picture. There are a bunch of poor people who had gathered around. Jesus is not saying here with the, these are called the, the Beatitudes. He's not saying with these blessed R's, he's not saying you need to be poor. You need to become poor in order to engage God. That's not what he's saying. He's, it, it wouldn't make any sense to a bunch of poor people, you need to become poor. He was talking to, to the poor people. He was saying to all of you, any who will ever hear my words, all of you, 
I bring life, I bring hope, I bring purpose. I want to I remind you of your importance and your value and your significance to all of us. The words of Jesus are magnetic. They, they draw people to him, all sorts of people. The disciples were, were, were said by Jesus, they, they, Jesus said to them, follow me. They dropped their nets. They dropped what they were doing and said, yes, Rabbi, I will follow you. He was magnetic. Hundreds, thousands of people gathered at the edge of their, at the edge of their seats to listen to what he had to say. He was magnetic. Have you ever known a magnetic person? Have you ever been a part of somebody in your family or in your place of business who just has that magnetic kind of personality? I'm not talking about that annoying, I'm talking about you just want to spend as much time as you possibly can absorbing all that you can. We have wonderfully a lot of magnetic people in our church. Fantastic. We, uh, there's a, a woman named Caroline Clock who volunteers in our, in our children's ministry, and she is a magnetic personality for those of you who know her. My wife met her a number of years back before she was coming here, and somebody said to her, if you want to know what's going on in Ahwatukee, if you want to know, have, kind of, have some connections here, you want to meet with Caroline Clock. You don't meet Caroline Clock and then forget about her. We have a lot of magnetic people here. I was talking uh, earlier about um, there's a gentleman here in the second row named Tony D'Andrea. And uh, Tony is a, uh, is a uh, barber. Would you prefer barber or hairstylist? Man. Hairstylist. Coiffeur? Okay, hairstylist. Okay, so uh, Tony is a men's hairstylist, and he has been sitting behind me. He had been sitting behind me for about a year, and then he finally said to me, Alan, I can't stand it anymore. I can't stand looking at your terrible haircut anymore. <laughs> And so I, he said, I'm either, I'm either going to have to sit in the back or I'm going to have to help cut your hair. So he does. He cuts my hair now, and that's why I look this good. <laughs> so we can all say thank you to Tony. But anybody who knows Tony knows that he's a magnetic personality. To know Tony is to like Tony. There's this thing about magnetic personalities. Let me just toot the horn for a little bit with regard to your worship pastor. Marsh Hall. Now, he's, he's got a pretty good voice. I mean, he can sing. I'll give him that. He, can, he, he starts singing and squirrels in the neighborhood, they all perk up. And, and the birds, they try to harmonize with. I mean, the guy can sing. I'll give him that. But I, I think that his value here is so much bigger than his ability to vibrate his vocal cords. He is a magnetic personality, and people like to be around him. I don't know if you've noticed, but there is a great band, group of talented musicians who gather every week to, to rehearse and then to lead worship with us and for us every Sunday morning. I, I hope that you would agree with, with that scene there. A, a phenomenal group of musicians. And they gather, and they, they don't just look, they're not just pretending to enjoy what they're doing. They're not just pretending to be passionate about you, uh, allowing their gift of music to help us connect with a living God. 
That is a real deal, and that doesn't always happen in terms of musicians. Musicians are weird people. And, and, and these folks, they love being together, and they love being led by Marsh. They love hanging out with Marsh. Somebody came up to me after the first, sur- first service and said, who are you talking about? But he was just kidding, because he loves Marsh. So there's this, there's this thing about, about a magnetic personality that, 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 um, that draws people towards him, and the teachings of Jesus are magnetic. He says, he starts his sermon off, he says, he says, I want to draw in those of you who are poor in spirit, those of you who are mourning, those of you who are meek. I want to draw you in. And his teachings throughout the gospel stories, he is magnetic towards the outcast, towards the prostitute, the tax collector, the sinners. And he continues to be magnetic today. For us, those of us who are hurting and lonely and depressed and tired and frustrated and confused and broken, that he continues to magnetically pull us in to come, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Come, he draws us in. His teachings are magnetic. Secondly, His teachings are practical. They are wonderfully practical. Jesus doesn't spend all his time way up in the air with this theological, metaphorical connections of how a particular word can be divided up into four syllables, and those four syllables represent all that. He doesn't do all this kind of stuff. He brings it down. He says, this is how to do life. He is so wonderfully practical. He talks about how to do life. Life. Turn with me, if, if you have your Bibles, to verse 21 in chapter 5. Chapter 5 just, can, just goes on and on with these practical ways of how to do life. Verse 21, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. That there's this anger piece we need to be careful with that with regard to your brother and your sister and your family and your coworkers and those that you love and those that you do life with. Jesus talks practically about anger and forgiveness and divorce and how to deal with money. Very practically. Look at verse 27. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus doesn't give this big theoretical comment about keep in mind the value of all persons, even other genders, and keep in mind where thine eye looketh and how that might affect that other person in a very ethereal way. No, he says, don't look at a woman lustfully. Now, how many guys, raise hand, for how many of you is that kind of a practical teaching? Bunch of liars. There's two kinds of people. There's the three of you who raised your hand, and there's a bunch of liars. This is a church. Okay, let me ask it a different way. For how many of you did you need to hear that this morning already? Okay, don't raise your hands. Don't raise your hands. Don't raise your hands. You're sitting next to your wife. Okay. This is practical teaching. Jesus comes in and says, I want to talk with you about how to do life. And it is a beautiful gift. It is a beautiful gift. That's why we have to remain 
practical in terms of our teaching here. And yes, we want to go deep. And sometimes people say, I want to go deep. And deep means that we talk about things that don't matter. Sometimes. Okay, now we want to be deep. We want to be meaningful. We've got to be practical. If in this place we're not practical and relevant, we don't matter. If Mountain Park is not a practical, relevant experience with Scripture, with in terms of doing life together, we don't matter. Jesus gives an amazing model that teaching needs to be practical. That's why we're going to talk about sex. We're going to talk about money. We're going to talk about how to do life. We're not just learning for information. We're learning to be transformed by the grand story. Okay, the third thing, I want to look at uh, chapter 6. First verse in chapter 6 here. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness. And in my, in my Bible, it's in quotes. And, and I just love that. Careful not to do, I think Jesus is the one who first did this. I think, he's, I think he did careful not to do your acts of righteousness. And, and Matthew didn't know how to, how to write that, so he just put quotes and giggled while he said it. Careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth. They have received their reward in full. You ever been called a hypocrite? If you haven't, can you imagine what it would feel like to be called a hypocrite? I think it might feel offensive. The third thing is that the teachings of Jesus are offensive. The teachings of Jesus are offensive. There are images in Scripture that Jesus is is the lion and the lamb. We get the lamb part. We get that pretty easily. We've seen all the, the portraits. Perhaps if you grew up in church, there was a portrait somewhere in one of the rooms where Jesus had the soft lighting and he had a child on his lap where he was holding a lamb and he had a little bright smile ding, and he had clean teeth. Uh, some of us may think that Jesus is like Mr. Rogers and he has a really soft voice and he wears a cardigan and he takes his sandals off one at a time and he says, won't you love your neighbor? Please won't you love your neighbor? Can you say substitutionary atonement? I knew you could. We get the lamb part. We know Jesus was loving and tender and kind and and all these things. Scripture also talks about him being a lion. The teachings of Jesus are offensive. He didn't say hypocrites. And there are other times where he says specifically, you hypocrites. He doesn't do that because he's, he's getting so mad and he's out of control. He's doing that because he's speaking truth. Jesus speaks truth. The people that he was calling a hypocrite, he was saying literally that you are doing one thing on the outside, but your heart is at a different place. They're, they're not the same. You, what you're looking like and acting is not what's happening on the inside. That's the definition of a hypocrite. Two different things are going on there. You're being a hypocrite. Another time, Jesus says to the, to the religious, spiritual people who thought they were better than everybody else, Jesus says, you snakes, you brood of vipers. What a great phrase. I need to use that more in life. I can call my kids. No, I don't know. So he says, you snakes, you brood of vipers. He said, how can you imagine that you are not going to be condemned to hell? Mr. Rogers would never say that. 
Right? There's a time where Jesus enters into the temple courts and people are making money off, off poor people who are coming in to, to, to purchase uh, kind of these cheap animals so that they can sacrifice them and people are making a ton of money and Jesus comes in and says, this is not what the temple courts are for. And he turns into the Incredible Hulk and he flips tables over and he, gets, he just gets a raid in that situation. He's offensive. And he's offensive with the words that he says. He says, I and the Father are one. I'm God. And what we looked at last week was Luke 4 where Jesus reads from Isaiah 61 saying, the Spirit of the Lord has come upon me to, to preach good news to the, to the poor, recovery of sight to the blind, and freedom for the prisoners. This is fulfilled in your hearing. I am Him. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is offensive. People, people don't want, they didn't want to hear that then. Many don't want to hear that now that Jesus would say something like that. There are many things in Scripture where we read it and we go, how could he have possibly said that? You know how I know that the teachings of Jesus were offensive? Because nowhere in my knowledge did a group of people gather around Mr. Rogers and say, kill him, crucify him, crucify him. People don't kill someone who is just a sweet, gentle, tender lamb. He was offensive. And if you're reading Scripture, and there are parts of it that you go, whoa, I, don't, I can't connect with this. This is, this is a little offensive. This is hard for me to hear. I don't know if I agree with this. You know, maybe you're getting it. Because the teachings of Jesus are offensive at times. The last thing I want to look at and our four attributes of the, of, of the um, teachings of Jesus. These aren't, these aren't the magical four. These are just four that I'm trying to stir up to, to generate a renewed interest in the, in the teachings of Jesus. But fourth thing that I think is so profound is that the teachings of Jesus are kingly. They are kingly. They are about a kingdom. Chapter 6, verse 9 is a very, very uh, famous and known section that Jesus spoke. He said, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then jump to verse 31. So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Your kingdom come. Seek first the kingdom. Jesus talks about the kingdom of God a lot in His, in his teaching. A lot. In uh, Matthew chapter 13, he tries in many ways to explain what the kingdom is about. It is a mustard seed. It is yeast. It is a, uh, it's like a hidden treasure. It is like a net, etc. So he's trying to paint the picture of what this kingdom of God is all about. For us, most of us, we don't quite connect with the kingdom of God language 
so well. We think maybe kingdom, that's like a Disneyland Mickey Mouse thing. Happy, happy kingdom or whatever thing might be. Or we think that it is a, a government system that we're not familiar with, that we don't connect with. It's kind of uh, either it's far away or it's a long time away in terms of the whole king stuff. We don't use king and kingship language. We use president and senator and healthcare reform and April 15th. That's the kind of language that we, that we use. We're not familiar with this kingdom language. But keep in mind, his hearers, the Hebrew people, they would have been incredibly familiar with this language. Remember, that's what the whole exile story was all about. That the Jewish people, they had a mighty kingdom. And they had a powerful king. King David, King Solomon, and they lost it all. It was all gone when they were exiled for hundreds of years, and they longed for it back. They so wanted to have an earthly kingdom restored. So they understood God's kingdom come. But Jesus was redefining kingdom. At another time, he says, the kingdom of God is within you. Jesus is saying, I'm talking about a kingdom that the world has never seen before. That the kingdom of God consists of people who say, I want to be a follower of Christ. I want to live my life according to the teachings of Jesus. I want to live my life so that I am in the yes position to God. Whatever He wants me to do or to say or to be, that's who I want to be. And as we become that as people, as families, as a church, as a community, as a city, we bring the kingdom of God. It's a totally different kind of kingdom. It's not an earthly, political power kingdom. It's a completely different thing that the world had never seen because Jesus knew that the mighty Roman Empire, the kingdom of the Romans, would eventually fall. And the mighty, powerful United States will eventually fall. That's hard for us to even imagine. But the kingdom of God which is within us, it will reign forever. And Jesus prayed, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. See, Jesus started a revolution to bring about a new leader, a new kingdom, a new king. And it was a new kind of revolution. It was a revolution of love. That's why the next tab, after the Messiah we're going to look at, it's called the Revolution. Because the disciples and his followers, they wanted to continue on with the teachings of their rabbi, their teacher, their Messiah. They want to continue on with the, with the revolution. And the beauty is that they got invited into this process, and we do too. We get to be a part of this revolution. One good decision at a time. One act of kindness, one act of love, one person, one story, one moment at a time, we get to be a part of bringing the kingdom that Jesus talked about a lot in his teaching. Okay, so let me, let me wrap up with a really simple challenge for you. Just a really simple challenge. And it's three words, and I've got three blanks in your handout. First time I've ever had blanks. And the fill-in for those three words are the challenge, become well read. Become well read in terms of the teachings of Jesus. And it's not a typo because in, in many Bibles, the teachings of Jesus are, are in red letters. If that's not you, you can highlight them or, or 
something when it reads, Jesus said, boom, that's one of the things that Jesus said. May we become familiar with the, with the 100 things that Jesus said. They are a treasure. We have access to the notes of four guys who took his three-year course. And so we get to benefit from what they got to experience. It's a treasure. It is a gift. In the Old Testament, the rabbis would teach the students to say that the words of God, the law and the precepts of God, they are sweeter than honey and finer than gold. And to help them understand just how valuable this stuff is, they would actually pour honey onto their tablets where they would be memorizing and learning Scripture. They'd pour honey on it, and the children would eat the honey, lick the honey off the tablets as a physical reminder that what I'm dealing with here is a treasure. It is a sweet treasure from God. Some of us need to pour a little bit of honey on our Bibles to understand it's not a, a project that we need to get through. It is a gift. It is a treasure. And the whole thing can be daunting. I get that. But what about going after the 100 things that Jesus said? If Jesus is the greatest teacher who has ever lived, whether you are a follower of Christ or not, wouldn't it be wise for us to know what he said? Wouldn't that make sense? So the, the, the challenge in terms of become well-read, one option is to go after the Sermon on the Mount. Read it a few times. Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. It's three chapters, but in my book, it's three pages. It's three pages. That's it. Or go after all of Matthew. Matthew uh, covers a lot of the teachings of Jesus. Actually, 59 of the 100 things of Jesus. 59% covered just in the book of Matthew. I think that would be great use of your time. So I want to I challenge you and inspire you to become well-read, to become familiar with the treasure, the gift, the teachings of Jesus Christ. It's that, it's that simple. And look out, because it will transform your life. Let's pray. Father, thanks for the gift of your word. And uh, Father, I'm not, I'm not saying here today that there are certain scriptures that are more important than others. I don't think there's any indicator that you want to communicate that to us. But I personally, I personally respond differently when I see the red letters. To imagine that your son, the king of all kings, came and spoke those words. And, and it's not just, well, I think Jesus said something like this, but I trust in the preservation of your word and that you have given us what Jesus said. May we use our imaginations to see the king of kings speaking these words to us. Yes, some of the language is hard to translate for us, but some of it is, is right on. Father, I pray that you'd inspire each of us this week to embrace the things that you've taught us through your son, Jesus. Come and transform us in the name of, uh, in, in the name of your son, we pray. Amen.